so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Commission <laughs> with <laughs> Does it, <laughs> I cannot does it talk. come with the giggle? No. Commission. <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't remember. It's like it's that is that, that funny? The United States Commission on International Religious Freedom. Yes. No, you got to say I, it together. I am going to say it, but Let's I'm trying just, to start from the beginning so Mark doesn't have to go back and cut train it. wreck. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me this week is three-time pickleball loser, Brent Leatherwood. There you go. That's right. Lost three games of pickleball to my wife and the other random person that she was playing with at the pickleball courts that we went to this week <laughs> in Gallatin, Tennessee. You should Tennessee. explain to listeners that this was your first time, yeah, it was first time playing pickleball. So my wife said that for her birthday, the one thing that she wanted to do was play pickleball on her, her birthday. So we did that this week and I really enjoyed it, but we just randomly had partners and each time we lost. But that's honestly, she was a scholarship tennis player in college. So that, that like, it should happen. That's that pretty way. impressive. Yeah. So. Well, and for those listeners who don't know what pickleball is, it's as Brent described, either a small game of tennis or a large game of ping pong. So yeah. you can go look it up and but it's try. Fun. Yeah, it's fun. Try your hand at pickleball. I wonder if we have any pickleball players in our audience. I wonder if we have anyone that can say pickleball players five times fast. There you go. So. Well, let's go ahead and start talking about what's been happening lately, and we will start with what the ERLC has been featuring this week. First up is a piece by our colleague, Chelsea Patterson Sobolik, and it's an explainer about an important Supreme Court case that oral arguments were heard for this week. Its title is Explainer, What You Should Know About Religious Liberty and the Coach Kennedy Case. So I'm just going to read a little bit from this article to give you um, an introduction to what it's about. So this is a case about the rights of teachers and coaches to privately express their religious belief while working for schools. Coach Kennedy is a high school football coach in Washington, and he had a tradition of kneeling and quietly praying at the 50-yard line after the football games. This was a private thing. He did not uh, make anyone participate in this with him. Sometimes the students would join him. So he was suspended by the high school because of this and later fired. And then he subsequently filed a lawsuit against the school district, arguing that the school's actions violated the Constitution. 
And this is important because as Christians, our faith shapes the totality of how we live and the structure of our lives. And the government must allow people of faith to live out their convictions according to their religious beliefs. This is what Chelsea writes in the article. A teacher, administrator, student, or coach does not shed their religious beliefs simply because they enter the schoolhouse door or, as in this case, the field of play. Kennedy was living out his faith in public, and he should have the ability to do so without being punished. And as the ERLC, we want to make sure that those religious liberties are protected and respected. And so we filed an amicus brief, friend of the court brief in this case. Uh, Oral arguments were heard on Monday, and we will be eagerly awaiting the ruling, which should come down this summer. Yeah, my my expectation is just knowing the makeup of the court now that Justice Amy Coney Barrett has joined the bench that that more than likely Coach Kennedy is going to succeed in this, and not least because the school district did in fact confirm that Coach Kennedy lost his job solely because of the religious expression that was taking place at the end of each game, which is just crazy. Just because you are a teacher or a coach or an administrator in a school, it doesn't mean that you individually shed your First Amendment rights. Now, the the school obviously cannot coerce, uh, and that's uh, that's ultimately where the the rub is here, and that's what the the justices are going to decide is is Coach Kennedy voluntarily praying and and asking his players uh, if they would like to voluntarily pray is is that coercion and is that is that mandating uh, that the that the players participate? We joined a brief in this case and said uh, we don't believe so, uh, and we think that Coach Kennedy's rights should be respected. Uh, and he certainly should not have lost his job over this. That that would send a very chilling effect uh, to anyone who who would want to express their religious views. And um, if anything, a a school should be a place where uh, those kinds of views can be expressed freely and openly without the state uh, putting its its thumb down on you. So we, I look forward to this decision. And, and like I said, I think with Justice Barrett joining, there's a good chance that Coach Kennedy is going to prevail, which would be a good thing for religious liberty in America. Right, and I guess we should clarify too: a, a, a public school should be a place where yes, they should a, be able to a see a public that. school. That's yeah. right. Yes, this is a public uh, school, public high school. And you know, interestingly, when I was in high school, which was twenty years ago, which is crazy, it doesn't feel like that could be the case. I had a friend who made a sign. I don't remember exactly what it was for, but maybe Bible Club or something like that. And the school wouldn't let her put it up, and she contacted an organization that would represent her and her. Uh, religious freedoms and so that and then the school ended up relenting and letting her letting her put that sign up so anyway just interesting i'm thankful for the religious liberties that we do have and we just are uh hopeful that they will continue to be protected as is shown by how this case will be ruled next up we have a piece by hannah daniel our colleague in the washington dc office And it is titled, The United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, otherwise known as USERF, releases 2022 annual report on international religious freedom. And I'm going to read a little bit from her article and give a a summary. In this year's report, USERF recommended 15 countries to the State Department for designation as CPCs, or countries of particular concern. Ten countries were already on there, and then they added five other countries, which were Afghanistan, India, Nigeria, Syria, and Vietnam. Fortunately, all countries that I can actually pronounce uh, on this podcast. 
The report also recommends 12 countries to be on the watch list. Three had already been included, and then nine other countries were added. Azerbaijan, Central African Republic, Egypt, Indonesia, Iraq, Kazakhstan, Malaysia, Turkey, and Uzbekistan. And it's important to note that the report specifically noted the serious regression of religious freedom in Afghanistan since the Taliban rose to power in August of last year. And I just say all those countries' names because there are people living in those countries, and there are people under oppression. And many of them don't have the opportunity to hear about the good news of Jesus Christ, and it's illegal for them to do so. And so how can we respond to this? We can pray. We can be aware of these people who are facing oppression, and we can pray for them that God would bring um, the word to them in their language and that God would somehow bring the gospel to them and that even if they don't know physical freedom, they would know spiritual freedom. Lindsay, the USURF report is uh, an important report, as it is each year. Uh, USURF uh, releases this annually, and we use it to chart the trajectory that countries are taking uh, as it relates to international religious freedom. And um, and it's it's good that our government takes note of, of what is occurring around the world. And obviously, this is a part of our ministry assignment in the Southern Baptist Convention. And, and so that's why we uh, devote particular attention to explaining this and uh, Baptist Press covers it uh, because it is something that we feel Baptists should be aware of. And uh, it just reminds me, th- this is not something that is new. Uh, we care about international religious freedom as Baptists, and we have for, for decades now, years. And uh, Bart Barber pastor in, in, in Texas, uh, he was actually tweeting out something, and it caught my eye earlier this week, about uh, a uh, resolution that was passed by the SBC in 1923 about how uh, Baptists were being persecuted in Romania. And the very last line, I think, just sums it up. Baptists neither ask nor desire any religious privileges for themselves, which they do not equally request and desire for everybody else. And that that is just that's the heart of the Baptist faith and message. That's the heart of a Baptist is religious freedom and we want it here at home uh and we want it for individuals abroad. And that's just it's such an important Baptist distinctive and so that is why we at the URLC highlight this report each year and we think it is important that our fellow Baptists pay attention to it. Yes, and we want religious freedom because we believe in soul freedom, that nobody can make you trust in Christ and that be a credible, saving profession of faith. We we believe that you've got to be free by God's grace to place your trust in Christ. And we know that when stumbling blocks like legalities and persecution are removed, that doors can be opened. Now, we also know that In the midst of persecution, the Lord is not bound. His word is not bound. He continues to move, and we've seen that. But, of course, we would want people to be able to flourish under their governments. And then finally, we have a piece by Carissa Early, and 
This month is Sexual Abuse Awareness Month, and this post is about abuse, not necessarily sexual abuse, but about domestic abuse. And it's a book review, and it's titled When Home Isn't Safe, A Review of When Home Hurts, A Guide for Responding Wisely to Domestic Abuse in Your Church. It's written by Jeremy Pierre and Greg Wilson, and they aim to inform church leaders and congregants alike to educate them and equip them to be able to address domestic abuse within their churches. And Carissa, she writes, says one in three women and one in four men report experiencing physical violence from an intimate partner, which is, that is a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Brad Wilcox writes, she quotes him, domestic violence is still present in church-going homes and church clergy counselors and lay leaders need to do a much better job of articulating clear, powerful messages about abuse and more generally married life. And I think she quotes him to say, to point out that that we can't close our eyes to this. It's a reality that if one in three women and one in four men report this, that there are people sitting in our churches that have experienced or are experiencing this. We need to be aware of it. We need to teach about it. We need to report, and we need to do all we can to care for survivors of this type of abuse. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this, this uh, is consistent with our heart as displayed and our caring well materials and resources that we have produced to equip the church on on this issue and absolutely you're right uh, our what she writes here uh is absolutely correct uh pastors and ministry leaders we, we we need to be wrapping our arms around you and making sure that you have what you need to talk about this and address this from the pulpit and in small groups and in your discipleship uh, initiatives so that way, a, a church can become a place that cares well uh, for those who have been abused and and puts in place initiatives and checks and all sorts of procedures to ensure that your church does not become a place where abuse occurs. And, and so uh, this is certainly a very timely piece and, and one that is very much in alignment with what we want to do at the URLC. And we will continue to do that work and highlight important issues like these so that we can educate and equip one another as Christians, as Southern Baptists, as the church, to be able to represent and minister Christ to those in the midst of these type of situations. We have plenty of other helpful resources on our site this week, but for now, Brent, that's your look at what's happening at ERLC.com. Moving into our culture section this week, Brent, why don't you give us the rundown? All right, Lindsay, we start this week with the funeral of a major figure in the American political landscape uh, occurring this week in Washington, D.C. So this first story comes to us from ABC News, where it tells us that President Biden, President Obama, the Clintons all spoke at the funeral for Madeleine Albright, the first female secretary of state. And from the story, it reports much of official Washington paid tribute to former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, the first woman to ever serve in that role at her funeral Wednesday at the National Cathedral. Albright, who had cancer, died in March at the age of 84. She served as Secretary of State from 1997 to 2001 under President Bill Clinton and as U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations from 1993 to 1997. President Joe Biden eulogized Albright, sharing a story about a speech he gave last month in Poland, where he said a crowd of hundreds cheered when he mentioned her name. Quote, Albright's name is still synonymous with America as a force for good in the world, 
Madeline never minced words or wasted time when she saw something needed fixing or someone who needed helping. She just got to work. And that's really what she is known for. Uh, She was a workhorse in her time in American diplomacy. And um, obviously, uh, she had a historic role to play by being the first ever uh, female secretary of state. And I honestly, I am thankful uh, for the the life uh, that she led uh, because many folks may not realize this, her, her family was an immigrant family to the United States. And she saw the promise of America and wanted to play a role in telling the rest of the world uh, about that. And I, that's that's something to be recognized for sure. And we had a piece by Dr. Richard Land, former president of the ERLC, who was personal friends with Madeleine Albright. And he wrote about how she was a peacemaker and how we are called to be peacemakers like that in our day and age. And he told a little bit of her personal story. Um, Like you said, she was from an immigrant family. They had to flee Czechoslovakia in 1938, he says, one step ahead of the Nazis. So you can imagine she experienced a lot of things. And then... When she was being vetted for Secretary of State in 1997, he says, she discovered that she and her family were actually Jewish, not Catholic, and that more than a score of her relatives were murdered in the Holocaust, including three of her grandparents. Which, how would they, how did she not know that three of her grandparents were um, murdered in the Holocaust? I don't know, but it just underscores why she was so thankful for America and why she worked so hard to be a peacemaker. And we are definitely thankful that uh, Dr. Land shared his experiences. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just going back to your point, I'm totally speculative. I don't know if this is her story, but remember prior to World War II, America letting in Jewish refugees, uh, we weren't actually, it's not exactly like we had an open door policy for those individuals. Uh, Some of that is because we weren't entirely sure what was going on uh, with Germany and I think in some sense we didn't want to know. Uh, so there, there there could very – I could easily imagine a situation where her family, in order to get into America, didn't say that they were Disclose Jewish. Instead, it, yeah. just say, Makes hey, we're, we're Catholic. So it could be that. Uh, again, totally speculative. That may not be accurate at all. But maybe somebody will fact check me on that to be sure. What I do love, though, about Dr. Land sharing his insights, though, about her – is uh, the story that he has shared elsewhere uh, is that she blurbed one of his books. And I just think that's that's incredibly neat that a former Secretary of State, the first ever woman uh, Secretary of State, uh, gave a helpful review uh, to one of Dr. Land's book. And I can't remember, there was some other big name from the Republican Party uh, who, who did the same. I can't remember who it was at, right now. Uh, but I just think that is neat. And it speaks to the, in a sense, it speaks to the role that we play in the RLC, where we are working with folks from different administrations, from different parties, it, it speaks especially to Dr. Land, uh, the fact that he was able to have that kind of a personal relationship with uh, such a high-ranking figure. That's that's just great. Yes, and it is an example for us in, I know as we continue to say, our polarized environment, but they had significant disagreements yeah. on um, foundational issues And yet, that didn't mean that Dr. Land had to hate her or Mm. vilify her or speak down to her. He He, actually cultivated a friendship with her. Right. It was a a very warm relationship, and credit to him and to her. Right, yes. So, he upheld the dignity inherent in her 
And we don't know the behind the scenes of what what they discussed and how, who knows, Dr. Land might have shared the gospel with her. I don't know. But I do know that if he had uh, vilified her, he probably that door would have been closed. So it's just a good example to us. We're not all going to be friends with high-ranking officials, <laughs> but we can be friends with our neighbor next door. That's, there you go. That's entirely different than us. Okay, our next story comes to us from Axios. And speaking of President Biden, he got some not great news this week. The American economy is shrinking. The gross domestic product fell in the first quarter as businesses slowed their inventory buildups and exports declined. It is the first negative growth number for the U.S. economy since the spring of 2020 at the onset of the pandemic. The economy contracted at a 1.4% annual rate in the first three months of the year, the Commerce Department said on Thursday. That compares with 6.9% growth in the fourth quarter of 2021. So uh, some analysts, they they kind of dug beneath the number. So obviously that, that top line number is not great. The analysis did suggest, though, that underneath the surface, there are still encouraging signs. So uh, it's a bit of a mixed bag, but needless to say, in the midst of an election year, uh, that is not what the White House wanted to see. And Axios goes on to write this. The negative headline number gives a distinct whiff of stagflation, which is an economic term, meaning uh, stagnant growth paired with high inflation. Uh, And that is a political liability for President Biden and Democrats especially if it were to repeat as the year progresses. It appears that the extraordinary growth numbers of 2021, a result of the economy reopening from the pandemic, are a thing of the past. But the details of the GDP report suggest that underlying growth remains relatively strong for now. I've got to be honest and say, I do not understand what this means. (laughs) And maybe the average person like me doesn't either. So what what does this mean for my daily life and my uh, economic habits? Sure. Well, so it talked a little bit about stagnant growth paired with uh, high inflation, that stagflation number. Well, we all have seen and felt the effects of higher inflation. Uh, our, our buying power is just seemingly decreased overnight for many of the things that we normally are purchasing out there. Probably the the bigger thing to watch will be if we get another quarter of negative growth it would signal that the U.S. is officially in a recession again, which uh, we did enter a steep recession at the beginning of the pandemic when everything froze. And if if we were to re-enter it now at a time where it seems, you know, a, a lot of – actually, the vast majority of locations across the country are reopening, uh, th- that would pretend – really bad things uh, for this election year for President Biden and and Democrats. So it's certainly not something that they welcomed. And honestly, I don't know that it's something most Republicans would would welcome either. We we don't want the country to suffer economic harm. But uh, needless to say, it it will have political consequences uh, if if it does continue. So that's where we are. All right, this next story comes to us from earlier in the week. And as you may have heard, multi-billionaire Elon Musk has bought Twitter, and he said this week that it should be neutral. So there's a couple of stories here. This first one comes to us from The Guardian, uh, and it says, Elon Musk has said Twitter must be, quote, politically neutral in a comment posted last night after a wave of account deletions by left-leaning users on the social media network. In the days since, get this, Musk bought Twitter for $44 billion dollars. 
uh, and it was accepted by Twitter's board. Hundreds of thousands of users have closed their accounts on the site, the company confirmed, leading to a dip in follower numbers for the left-leaning politicians and celebrities, such as uh, Barack and Michelle Obama, Taylor Swift, and Jeremy Corbyn. Meanwhile, right-wing influencers such as far-right Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, Boris Johnson, and Ted Cruz have all had large gains as new users sign up for the service. And the latest in a series of tweets about the platform, Musk hopes to take into private ownership the world's wealthiest person suggested he would not seek to politicize Twitter. For Twitter to deserve public trust, it must be politically neutral, he said. So I'm pairing that with a uh, analysis by Axios, and it says what Musk's free speech Twitter could unleash. And it goes on to say Elon Musk pledged to allow any speech on Twitter that doesn't break the law would open the door to a pandemonium of objectionable and harmful content, from gory videos to efforts to mislead voters to promotions of phony COVID cures. And they they take that from this. Even much smaller social networks that aim to minimize content moderation have found that, quote, an anything-goes-if-it's-legal policy quickly devolves into a miasma of violence, spam, fraud, and bullying. So, look, people are going to come down on this. It, it was funny. It seemed like everyone had an opinion on Elon Musk buying Twitter. I saw some folks who were trying to just take a step back and understand what it all mean. They said, look, if you're being charitable to Elon Musk, he does have a history of trying to solve problems. And nearly everyone agrees, at least that I've talked to and just kind of read and heard from, that Twitter is kind of a problem. There's so much yelling. It seems to incentivize drama and debate and discord. If there's a way to fix that uh, where it actually becomes more of a helpful news sharing and opinion sharing platform without all of the drama associated with that, uh, I, I could see a future where it's better. I guess a lot of these folks are saying that's actually not the direction, though, that that Elon Musk is taking it. And if if what Axios is reporting here, if he were to take it in a direction where it's just pretty much anything goes, uh, then then that would suggest that, that maybe a lot of bad stuff is actually about to be a part of it. I don't know. Well, and what he can't fix and overestimates his abilities uh, to fix is the human heart. (laughs) And so where you have the human heart involved, Mm -hmm. I'm sure maybe there are some platforms where it's social media platforms that are healthy. I just saw this this one called, I don't even know what it's called, but it's got something real in its name. So it's an alternative, Be Real or something. Be Real, yes. Yeah, but the thing is, you look at things that started nice, like Facebook, Instagram, whatever, and it devolves into just chaos and sin and shouting because of, again, the human heart. So I don't have a lot of hope for it. If he thought that he could fix it, great. I appreciate the the sentiment, but I, I just don't think social media is where things are going to be fixed right now. Yeah. I mean, look, if, if I'm just saying, if there, if there are a couple things that I would say, uh, go back to Twitter just being chronological. So tweets just come in as time happens, right? And instead of it trying to use its algorithm to, you know, try and match you with the things that it thinks you would prefer, which tends to be things that either make you really mad or things that make you uh, want to engage. I mean, that's ultimately what it wants is engagement. Uh, so take take those things away. And gosh, maybe even take away the retweet button. Yeah, I was just, I'm 
in the process of listening to a podcast episode with Dr. Moore, Russell Moore, mm-hmm. with um, Jonathan Haidt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's talking about how everything changed in 2009 with social media because of the introduction of the, I believe, is the like button on Facebook and then the retweet function. Yeah. And if you remove those, maybe that would help a little bit. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. But again, it does come back to what you're pointing out, which is our fallen hearts. Mm-hmm. Okay, moving on to our next story. Lindsay, are you ready for some good news about COVID? I'm ready for some great At least news. I'm, I'm, I, think this is, I think this is good news, right? And it comes to us from uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci. We haven't talked about him recently, but this is an NBC News story. And he says the U.S., is transitioning out of the pandemic phase. He expressed optimism about the state of the pandemic in the U.S. this week. Quote, we are certainly right now in this country out of the pandemic phase. Fauci, the White House's chief medical advisor and director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, told PBS NewsHour on Tuesday. He also told the Washington Post on Wednesday that the U.S. had entered the control stage of the pandemic, as the coronavirus is causing far lower levels of hospitalizations and deaths during the winter surge of the Omicron variant. So that's good news, Lindsay. That is good news. And uh, I hope that is the case. And I saw surfacing in the news today information that I hadn't heard in a while on vaccines for children under six, under five, under six or something. So maybe those are not too far off off in the future. So he he has talked before about these five phases of the pandemic. The control phase is phase number three. Then we get to uh, a phase where the the threat level is much lower, and then eventually we eradicate it. He did say, I'm not sure that we will actually ever get to a place where we eradicate COVID-19, but it will just become much more. I mean, we've said this before, just something that we live with, like the flu. Yes, endemic instead of pandemic. That's right. What will be interesting to see, though, is what the long-term effects are. You know, will it just be like the flu where there's no long-term effects, a cold, or will it be like another virus that you find out in the future? It affects more than we thought at first. I hope not. I pray that's not the case. Right. Right. Okay. And our last story, Lindsay, comes to us from Axios, and it deals with some stuff that's going on at the state level. Oklahoma just passed a version of Texas' six-week abortion ban, the the Heartbeat uh, Act. The Oklahoma House on Thursday passed a bill that would ban all abortions past the six-week of pregnancy before many people, which, parentheses, obviously we know that that means women, but for some reason uh, some of these news outlets just continually say people, uh, know that they are pregnant. Oklahoma is the second state to model a law after Texas's six-week abortion ban, which encourages private citizens to sue anyone they suspect has helped a person receive an abortion. The bill now heads to uh, Governor Kevin Stitt's desk, who has said it is his goal to make Oklahoma the most pro-life state in the country. As a matter of fact, he has previously said any legislation that regulates abortion and lessens abortion, he will sign it if it makes it to his desk. The legislation would take effect immediately after it's signed into law. Idaho was the first state to pass and enact a bill like Texas, but it, it has been temporarily blocked uh, by a federal court. So uh, once again, we, we see more and more states. As a matter of fact, last week, Baptist Press came out with a rundown of just kind of where abortion legislation stands uh, across the country from the various state legislatures that are beginning to wrap up across the country. And uh, so I'd refer you back to that piece. We'll link to it in the in the show notes. Uh, but this is just a reminder. We are now 
days, well, we're weeks away, we think, but potentially even days. I mean, the Supreme Court could could release the opinion at, at any moment uh, for the the Dobbs Mississippi abortion case. And uh, that is that is certainly something lots of folks are paying attention to. You know, that is going to be big news when that drops. So we will be watching that. This out of Oklahoma is good news for the rights of those little babies in the womb uh, who should be protected. And like we've said over and over again, this is where Christians need to prepare and churches need to prepare to help make abortion unthinkable and unnecessary in a woman's life to where if she finds herself in the situation of an unplanned pregnancy, she knows that she has alternatives to ending the life of her child. Instead, she could even run to the church, run to a Christian, and find the help that she needs to either have that child choose life and then um, allow that child to be adopted or find the resources that she needs to be able to care for the child, whatever it is. Uh, we want to remove any of those reasons why she might might feel that ending the life of the child within her is something that she could or would legitimately do. That's right. So, Lindsay, that is your look at This Week in Culture. Thanks for that, Brent. And now it's time for The Lunchroom, where we tell you what we are talking about with each other. All right, Brent, I am going to tag you first because— I think what you're going to talk about is a little bit boring. So then what I'm going to talk about is a little bit more fun. Well, actually, that that lends itself nicely as an intro, even though I know you mean it as a dig, uh, because it's talking about the cost of all those Zoom meetings. And I think what what you're saying is absolutely right. Those Zoom meetings tend to be boring, and it has stifled innovation. In-person meetings, a study has found— actually generate more innovation. And so essentially what you're telling me, Lindsay, and I can feel it coming through the microphone, is you actually need more in-person interaction with your colleagues uh, here at the RLC because the Zoom meetings have gotten so boring. So this is this also comes to us uh, from Axios. I feel like we've, we've used them quite a bit today. Uh, but it says a new academic study shows in-person meetings generate more ideas and more creative ones compared to video conferencing. Uh, in a laboratory study that started before the pandemic, more than 600 people worked in pairs in person or virtually for five minutes to come up with ideas for how to creatively use bubble wrap or a Frisbee. <laughs> this is the kind of study you would participate yes. in. Pairs working on Zoom came up with fewer ideas. Well, okay. That Now that you say that, because I didn't even read your article, well, duh, because it's a physical item that you have to figure out more ideas with. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily like a a mental thing that you have to work with. Right. Well, so the the secret sauce of collaboration is that in person, team members typically share visual cues from their environment and each other that can spur ideas. Get this. In a virtual meeting, all eyes are focused on the screens and ignore the environment. That's kind of like, yeah, no, no kidding. <laughs> So, anyways. You're too busy looking at yourself in the Zoom call, too. Like, you see your face, and you're, like, fixing your hair, and, you know, you're multitasking. It's true. Uh, well, so, there you go. I, I, yeah. I, think that's, I think that's interesting. I mean, a lot of our places of work out there have moved into these kind of virtual settings. And so, you know, what cost has that come at? And apparently, according to this study, it's, it's innovation. Yeah, less ways to use frisbees and bubble wrap. 
<laughs> the world is a less better place. I, uh, hey, listen, I just want meetings where we can, in person, where we can practice trust falls and such. And you know what's great about Those are in-person, retreats, not meetings. You know what's great about in-person meetings, too, are the snacks and the food. Now, you cannot replace that. No, you can't. On Zoom. So I get that. And I love to be with my colleagues. And don't get me wrong. All right, so Lindsay, that's what I'm bringing. I know you thought it was a snooze fest. I thought it was actually pretty enlightening. What are you bringing? Well, I'm bringing a little bit of a laughter. So I don't typically listen to comedians. It's not something I grew up doing or anything like that. But then, and this is old, but then I've learned about this comedian, Brian Regan, who is pretty clean and appropriate. It's not the stuff that I've heard hasn't been inappropriate, and he is hilarious. You have to watch his comedy because he reminds me a lot of Jim Carrey. He uses physical humor and is, makes faces. But I linked to his I Walked on the Moon um, bit, not bit, but it's a stand-up act, and it is funny. He talks about the me monster and how you're always trying to one-up one another. And he's like, I wish I would have been one of those guys who walked on the moon because now no matter— Who's one-upping who? They always just have to say, yeah, well, I walked on the moon (laughs) and talks about driving his rover on the moon and things like that. And then he talks about how when you go to the doctor, they're the only people that you pay to insult you. So you walk in the doctor and he's like, hey, you put on a few pounds since I saw you last. He's like, thanks a lot, doctor. And he's like, and that mole there looking a little interesting. He was like, well, thanks a lot, doctor. Now I feel great about myself. You're calling me the big fat mole man, (laughs) which is awesome and so true. So uh, this, like I said, is pretty clean. So if you're looking for a little, just some fun laughs, I would encourage you. And if he comes, because he still tours. So if if he comes to a city near you, I saw him in person and I cracked up, cracked up. So you're one of those people that goes to a a comedy um, club, like club. No, theater. I've never been to one of those. This was in like a, this was in Louisville, and it was in one of their nice, like the, I don't, I don't even know what you call it. I don't know where concerts would be too, like a nice hall. No one's coming over something. to the skirmer horn doing. Yeah, I walked on n- the moon. Kind of like a skirmer horn, but yeah, yeah. It wasn't a comedy club. The, it was a nice. For, it was like T Pack. It was like T Pack. That's what uh, it was like. But for, for those Arts who may Center. not be familiar with Nashville, Skirmer Horn is the symphony hall here, which is host to world class uh, symphony orchestra. Yes. And T Pack is the but they Tennessee also Performing host Arts Center. Movies. Do they? Yeah. Well, they play orchestra. I was going to say. I think the, the orchestra yeah. plays a movie. Right. But it was like the T Pack is what it was. The gotcha. Performing Arts Center. So it is worth it. I was gonna, I was just going to chide you for being someone who goes to comedy clubs. I've never been to a comedy oh, club. Okay. Yep. Nope. Never. Like so, the improv or something. No, never been. I now, have you ever watched Whose Line Is It Anyway? Yes. The now back when there was Colin and so the the partly balding man, the tall man, Wayne, and then who was the last person? Was it always rotating? I guess that particular mm-hmm. person. Man, that was the best lineup. So funny. That was good. The original British version was better. I don't know, because British humor is just not my humor. That's like watching the American office versus British office. It's different humor altogether. It's because you're lowbrow. Well, yes. Well, I had to t- I had to have you explain economy and growth and recession to me today. So <laughs> clearly I am lowbrow. <laughs> 
<laughs> clearly, clearly, clearly. So listeners, when you find a few minutes, pull up this YouTube video, let Brian Regan make you laugh and um, just enjoy a little free, clean entertainment for your day. We should strive to do that every day. I think we do on this podcast. There you go. Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. And in addition to listening to the ERLC podcast, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday, and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology and ethics. And if you like staying informed about important policy decisions that matter to Southern Baptists, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill, which is hosted by our colleague, Chelsea Sobolik. Search for The Digital Public Square and Capital Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.